Welcome to Star Trek Comic Book Review. Our several-year mission will be to boldly go where no podcast has gone before. We will be reviewing every Star Trek comic book ever published. These stories have been released by Gold Key, Marvel, DC, Malibu, Wildstorm, Tokyo Press, IDW, and others. Star Trek and all that the Star Trek universe contains is copyrighted by CBS Studios, Inc. Hello and welcome to Star Trek Comic Book Review with Donovan and Ken. Episode number 48 for June 8th, 2011. So, we have Gary Seven finishing his story arc off uh, with a brief cameo. And we're doing a McCoy episode for the most part. Yes. Full of, uh, chock full of some excellent comics from the uh, Leonard McCoy Frontier Doctor series. We did issue number three yesterday because it fit more in line with the, uh, or I'm sorry, last week, because it fit more in line with the Gary Seven series that we were doing. Um, so this this week we're going to do issues number one, two, and four. Which will wrap up the uh, the series. And this was a John Byrne miniseries. Another very good John Byrne miniseries, I think. This I think might, I dare say. Yeah, this might actually be his the last of his actual miniseries for us to review. He, he's done a couple of one-shots, but this might be the last one of his full full-on miniseries. But knowing that this that this podcast will go on into the future, or already are we already in year two, or is that coming up? Uh, no, we passed the border yet. We have not passed the border yet. This is episode forty-eight. So ah, next, there you go. Well, and speaking of that, did, as, we, did we skip a week, or uh, have we done it every week? So fifty-two is the magic number. Fifty-two will be the magic number. Um, okay. We we had actually actually this would be like the forty-ninth episode because we had two number twenty-fours due to the the great uh, Galaxy Quest uh, April oh, Fool's joke we did. There you go. Okay. So, yep, it's almost our anniversary. Right. So um, I'm just pointing out that maybe, or maybe he stated he's not going to do it, maybe there might be another series some point in the next year or so he may produce. Oh, yeah, you and you're absolutely right. By the time this actually gets posted, he'll probably come out with something, I'm sure. Ah. Okay, but as of now, this will be the last one. And a fine one it is. Um, it's really cool to see McCoy come front and center in a series of stories like this. It's pretty cool. McCoy's a good good character uh, to have a uh, kind of one-offs on. Yeah, I wish there would have been the opportunity at some point to have um, you know, a little production actually with DeForest Kelly to do something like this. I think, I think he's a really good actor, or was a really good actor, and I think you know, he, could have been, he could have carried uh, a series of stories. Uh, maybe not a series, but I mean a whole series... You know, a TV series, but a, a, a short series of stories. I think he he does quite well, or the character does quite well in these books. Yeah, I I agree. I mean, and you know, he he was never even really the, you know, you always think of Star Trek being the 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 big three: McCoy, Spock, and Kirk. But in reality, he didn't even have his name in the front credits, did he? Or at least not for the first two seasons. I think he did eventually. Right. Uh, yeah, but, yeah, maybe not in the first one. But, uh, yeah, and, and most of the stories, I mean, it was either most, you know, e- either a, a Kirk emphasis 
or a Spock emphasis. There weren't all that many episodes that were McCoy emphasis. Uh, for the world is hollow and my my eye, my hands has touched the sky. I don't know, something like that. A third season episode. He was pretty uh, pretty featured in when he got the girl. Um, <laughs> and then, but really, I can't I can't think of it. All those that many others where he was front and center. He well, was pretty front and center in parts of Shore Leave, but uh. well, yeah, even in Spock's brain, which obviously should have been a very heavy McCoy episode, since he was the one performing the brain transplant. They still had Spock <laughs> giving him step by step directions <laughs> with his brain out. <laughs> oh, that was great. <laughs> was... So you'll have to connect the vocal cords <laughs> so I can tell you how to do the rest. Oh, that was great. It was something. Of ludicrousness. I don't. Anyway. So, anyway, so yeah. So, you want to get started on these three issues? Because they love to. It might take a little bit of time. A little bit of time indeed, but I will try to be expeditious. So, first issue is titled Weeds. And uh, writer and art is by John Byrne, of course. Colors by Loverne Kinzierski. Letters by Neil. Yukataki, original edits by Chris Ryall, and I won't go into the um, to the specifics of the uh, collection, which is what I'm reading from, by the way. Uh, Donovan's re- again reading from the original comics. I'm reading from the collection, uh, uh, not the individual comics. Okay, synopsis. Our story opens with Admiral Kirk's Admiral Kirk in a spiffy new Starfleet office on Earth. Kirk is looking over a three-dimensional plan of the Enterprise uh, refit when a lovely lieutenant enters with a package just delivered by special courier. Apparently, security scanned it and determined that it contains a handwritten document not sent through normal Starfleet channels. Kirk knows immediately that it's from Dr. McCoy and settles in with a glass of Saurian brandy for a long read of a good friend's letter. McCoy talks about taking Kirk's advice and getting out of the house, way out. He joined the Federation's Frontier Medics program and is out on the fringe helping to save lives. One of the places is on an Andorian colony in the Omicron testis system where he and his partner in medicine, Dr. John Duncan, just saved the life of the unborn child of the Prime Minister of the planet. After receiving thanks from the VIP parents, McCoy and Duncan make ready to depart the planet on the good ship Joanna, registry CRN-1841. Dr. Duncan, a fully qualified pilot, flies the old but spaceworthy ship up and into space. Unfortunately, when they engage warp drive, they are shaken violently due to excess weight in the ship that is causing an imbalance in the old and sensitive ship. Duncan orders shutdown of the warp field, and the two doctors begin the search for the likely stowaway that threw off the ship's weight. Using a tricorder, they are able to find a young Andorian girl's hiding place. Unfortunately, she, did, she didn't like being found and is able to kick open her hiding place door at just the right time to send Duncan flying backwards. McCoy's 
narration to Kirk comments on how he thinks this is the most unlikely way to start a romance. After dispatching Duncan, the Endorian girl unsheathes a knife that she threatens McCoy's throat with. The Endorian Dorian girl is a real pistol who is apparently from the Endorian arist, aristocra, aristocracy and used to getting her way. McCoy stands up to her despite the blade at his throat and tells her he'll show her the airlock if she does not behave. Meanwhile, Duncan knocks her out with a hypo spray and McCoy says it's time to take her back home. As the Endorian girl falls into Duncan's arms, the ship's computer tells McCoy it has detected a medical emergency signal from Ophicus 3, and that is the higher priority than returning the girl. As they approach the planet, McCoy says the name is familiar to him. The ship's computer states it's an Earth colony that was established there 59 years ago. It's primarily an agricultural colony and a member of the Polagiras trading commune. Population is 15,791. They land at the colony spaceport after observing the very lush and green planet that is almost entirely covered with greenery except for, a lar except for large sections of land bordering the colony. They disembark and meet Lars Vandernet and several other colonists. McCoy asks them to take the Andorian stowaway off their hands. Lars agrees to it and McCoy hands the cabin key that is locking her into one of the back cabins. McCoy and Duncan are taken by hovercar to the hospital where they examine workers infected by the blight. There are six distinct stages of the contagion ending in a rapid outbreak of fungus all over the infected person's body. When McCoy hears the only thing in common with the initial cases was that they are all workers at the fence that surround the colony, McCoy asks to be taken to the fence. At the perimeter fence, they are met by Ben Wilkes, the fence supervisor whose men first contracted the ailment. When he states the afflicted workers routinely work beyond the fence, McCoy and Duncan are taken on a hover pad tour beyond the fence. From the air, they see workers spraying defoliant on huge green plants that are almost shaped like sloths and are moving towards and damaging the perimeter fence. They are told they are walking roots of the Jampala tree. McCoy questions the environmental impact of spraying such large amounts of defoliant when some more workers on hover pads close in on the walking roots with phaser rifles. They fire on the roots that are damaging the fence. Duncan notices other plants not being fired upon are reacting to the attack on the walking roots. Meanwhile, back at the colony complex, Lars's assistant's assistant is informing the stowaway the Endorian embassy has dispatched a ship to collect her. She is quite angry in her barred cell. The assistant begins to stagger and says it must be the bug, but he has not been near the fence. He collapses and drops the key to the cell within arm's reach of the angry young Andorian. Back at the perimeter fence, the phaser fire appears to have enraged the huge root creatures and the men on the ground are in danger. McCoy and the others on the hover pads swoop in to pick up the endangered men. 
they are able to get back behind the fence when a section of the fence is smashed in by the irate plants. Yes, irate plants. They return to Lars uh, Vandernet's people, who inform them the entire, the entire colony is infected. It's spreading so rapidly, some of Vandernet's own people drop to the ground feeling ill. Even Duncan is feeling it. McCoy does some quick research on the Irish potato famine and states there may be an applicable lesson there where the majority of the potato crop in Ireland was wiped out because they were all the same variety of potato. No diversity. They get back to the Joanna and start using her advanced specialized medical equipment to determine or to examine Duncan, whose symptoms are progressing rapidly, but not in the order originally described by the doctors of the colony. The colony nurse assisting McCoy falls ill to the affliction, but not before she tells them the infection is identical across the board. The organism infecting all of them is indistinguishable from person to person. McCoy comes to the conclusion that the plant, that the planet is not covered in a diverse array of different green plants, but that it's covered with one plant that spans the entire globe. McCoy says that might even give, that might give them an advantage in treating this problem. Vandernet also succumbs to the disease, and finally even McCoy does. But McCoy's first symptom is the fungal growth on his right arm that has been the last symptom for most everyone else. McCoy comes to the conclusion the organism is mutating. As McCoy speeds to find a cure, the Andorian girl shows up with a gun, demanding that she be taken off the planet before she is infected too. McCoy deftly knocks the gun out of her hand, having noticed that she left the safety on. Enraged, she says his flesh will be stripped from his bones for his insolence. McCoy shouts right back and tells the brat, until, the f until that flailing begins, she will make herself useful. The doctor's per uh, parenting skills are in top notch since she shuts up and begins to do what she is told. McCoy assures her she will not be infected because she is not human. Seeing she is the only hope of the entire planet, she begins to take direction from McCoy and works quickly to come up with an antidote. Okay, I'm, I'm going to take a book out of Donovan's page now. Montage, montage, montage. Okay, so after a lot of work, uh, she sprays the potential cure on Duncan's face, and the fungus quickly disappears. It works! They are able to synthesize more of the antidote and spray it on the entire colony uh, from the Joanna flying over the colony. McCoy tells a recovered Vanternet that the cure is a temporary one, but it should give them the time they need to come up with a permanent solution. Vandernet is ecstatic and thanks McCoy profusely. McCoy states that Vandernet might not be so happy with him when the colonial control folks react to the report McCoy just filed criticizing the colonists' methods of dealing with the plant, uh, the planet-wide plant. An Andorian delegation beams down and after speaking to the stowaway, who is actually Thela of the House of Trelan, asks McCoy and Duncan to allow her to remain on the Joanna. 
Thela has seen the error of her spoiled ways and thinks she has found her true calling as a medical worker with McCoy and Duncan. McCoy is of course thrilled with the notion of becoming a babysitter, but is told Thela's family has enough clout with Starfleet that he really has no choice. Thela breaks in, making a heartfelt plea to stay aboard, which convinces McCoy to give her a one-month shot on probation. Everyone seems happy with the decision, except for the crusty old Dr. McCoy, who storms off waving his hands in the air, wanting to get off the planet before he makes any more decisions he will regret later. The story ends in Kirk's office as he reads that McCoy finally remembered the planet Orpheicus III was Harry Mudd's destination the first time they met him. Great memory bones. Triple trivia points for you. He also stated colonial control did rule against the colonists and named the planet-wide megaplant as a unique organism and therefore protected under Federation environmental laws. The colonists will have to change their ways dramatically or leave the planet. As the letter ends, Kirk puts the brandy away and leaves the office, stating to his lieutenant that if Bones is not careful, he might just start enjoying his new life as Leonard McCoy, Frontier Doctor. The end. Just thinking that uh, the end of this story with the planet-wide plant taking over Uh ended quite a bit differently than the... Gold Key Comics number one issue <laughs> where that wasn't a planet-wide plant. It was a planet controlled by the plants. By controlled by by moving apparently thinking plants. Yes, right. And it had spores that could go outside of the planet to infect yes. people. So exactly, it it had a lot of similarities to this story, except it had a radically <laughs> different ending. <laughs> Yeah, so so this is the tree hugger ending uh, that we just got through reading, and that uh, that gold key Star Trek one is uh, not. <laughs> and what does Spock do? Uh, Spock tells Kirk that they have to destroy the whole planet, and uh, so yeah, burn it, burn all the plants. Yeah, so there's those great shots of the Enterprise in orbit just laying waste to the whole planet uh, with its phasers. And then they just go off to have their next adventure. (laughs) (laughs) So, yeah, I just thought it was funny that uh, two radically different takes on how to deal with a plant that can cause infections. Right. (laughs) That's funny. That's funny. But uh, I like this. This story was good. Yeah, it was good. Um, uh, Something that uh, a theme that constantly comes up. Uh, when McCoy is brought to the forefront, uh, even in Star Trek, like in Miri, and there were other episodes where McCoy has to come in and come up with a cure to some deadly disease, like uh, within the uh, hour-long episode, mm-hmm. you know, rather than the decades, that at least with today's technology is what it takes to deal with some of these diseases. Uh, McCoy is able to uh, whip up a cure uh, pretty quick. So that's a, that's a, I mean, even with the future technology, you know, it's like, that's, you know, it's like, it, it's a little bit of a suspended disbelief thing. But other than that, yeah, it's a pretty good story. Well, at least they find a cure for this one. Right. 
which we well they thought they found a cure uh you know in in the episode original track episode miri they thought right that's but true. it turns out they didn't they found out later at least according to the comic book we read and the there was a novel too where it kind of dealt with the same thing oh were the uh onlys no wait, what were they called humans were called or adults I think they were, were onlys. onlys oh the adults were onlys uh... No, they were grumps. Grumps, right? Exactly. Yeah, you're right. Okay. The kids were the onlys because they were the only ones left. Right, right, I right. think. So, speaking of when they were curing the folks, I uh, when 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 Thela sprays that stuff on Duncan's face, could you, in your mind's eye, see this being filmed as a original series Trek episode, where he has all the fungus on his face, and then through a couple of transitions uh with the wavy lines the the mold just suddenly disappears exactly <laughs> so it's like the actor has to be very still as they film pause the camera remove some of the some of the plastic on their face roll you know you know whatever some kind of old-fashioned uh, <laughs> uh you know movie tricks to uh to make that appear as if it's disappearing but you have to have the little wavy lines like they did in uh, Star Trek The Cage. Wasn't there a transition scene in that? Oh, when she becomes her true form, the mutilated girl. Was it wavy girl. lines? Was it wavy lines? Yeah, oh. they had the little wavy lines. And then she's back. So anyways, that, that's what I saw when I, when I looked at those three panels. I'm like, right, uh, which I thought was good. Pretty good, satisfying story. So, just real quick, maybe this is me not remembering what Andorians are supposed to look like. Um, Or maybe I'm just really used to the Enterprise look of them. Are they supposed to have the antennas on the front of their heads or the back of their heads? Or is it either or? I thought it was on the top, towards the front. So, not not coming out of the foreheads, per se. But, you know, but, but towards the front, you know, the front of the cranium. That's right. what I thought. Right. And, but Thela's comes straight out of the back of her head. Exactly. Which, which throughout the whole comic, I'm like, that seems... I couldn't quite put my finger on what was what was bothering me about it. And then that last page where all the other Andorians are there, some of them have the antenna in the back, and some of them have the antenna in the front like they do in Star Trek Enterprise. So I guess... Right. Probably the original Trek had it in the back, and then when when they made when they re redid them for what's better special effects, they moved the antenna in the front. Right. So. I don't know, but I, I'll definitely say maybe he's covering his bases the same way he did with those two Klingons, uh, Burn that is. Right. Uh, in in last week's episode. Uh, episode. Yep. Uh, because definitely the most senior guy. Um, in this comic, towards the end, when they're reading with the delegation, he's got it. He's got the the antennas practically coming out of his eyebrows. I mean, that that it's that far ahead uh, or forward in, in his face. Right, which is what uh, Jeffrey Combs, who played the main Andorian in a lot of the Enterprise episodes, that's that's the way he looked like too. Yeah, hmm. and that's that's the vision I have stuck in my head. I don't yeah. really remember. You know how they looked in the journey of, to Babel and the other original series yeah, episodes. That, that, they were that would have been a good reference one to look at, because uh, even the young men seem to have it in the back, like like Thela does. Yeah, and, and I'm just assuming 
that that's probably what it was in the 60s they couldn't really do prosthetics so they just put a white wig on them and had some <laughs> blue things sticking out of the back exactly it would be easier to implement right so no i i, I like that i liked how he mixed them up yeah good point so what do you think about the ship's name i i thought that was cool now of course the 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 confusion of it is um joanna has been the name of his daughter and in some stories, wasn't it the name of his wife? His ex-wife, right. Right. I, I, I will always think of it as being the daughter, just because I've read those stories, not the one where the wife's, it's the wife's name. Well, but, you did uh, read it. It was in the comic strip, The Real McCoy. I don't remember that. You don't remember when that guy... Uh, I don't remember her name being Joanna. Yeah. Yeah, it was. Interesting. Well, uh, I read more uh, talking about the daughter. Right. So is it like uh, is it like a junior senior thing where the same no. name for both people? No, I don't think so. It's just sloppy. I, I, it's think... just it's just a lack of continuity. Right. I think because in the original, like uh, you know, Star Trek Bible that yeah. that, that DC Fontania wrote, she put in there that you know that he had a uh, daughter or whatever, and probably put in the name Joanna somewhere in there. And then what I'm taking is that probably the people who did the comic strip saw the Bible and kind of mixed the names up when they wrote the comic and then the the comic strip. But then the, when they re- did the comic books, they switched it back the right way. Mm-hmm. At least that's the way I'm assuming that, that it, it happened. Yeah. I definitely think of it more as being the daughter's name. But I anyway, do. that's pretty interesting that McCoy had enough clout to get it named um, after his daughter. Yeah, I, I thought I didn't. Yeah, I thought that was weird too because it's obviously a really, really old ship, and you would think that it had been in service for a long time. Right. And but they changed the name just for him. I guess so. I mean, it's a nice touch. They never talk about it, but anybody that knows the McCoy character would spot that right away. Right. Yep, I thought it was cool too. I thought in this book, not as much in the second issue, but in this one, Thela is drawn. Uh, as a looking like a very young girl. Um, I mean, so young, in fact. I mean, she looks like like a seventeen-year-old or a sixteen-year-old or something. She looks really like a immature body-wise, mm-hmm. um, not womanly yet. Uh, it just kind of creeps me out a little bit, considering the romance I know Duncan's going to have with her. <laughs> <laughs> okay, but, but she does look a little more mature in the second issue. Does she? I'll look real quick. She looks the same to me. No. Maybe her face looks. She, face she looks a little more mature. Mm. Especially in those first shots, where she's like rather seductively sitting on that, on that piece of equipment talking to McCoy. Right. And then later down the page, when she's walking away from him. Uh, yeah, no, I, I see it, and I think it's more her face. She doesn't have quite as round a face in yeah. that book than she does in this one. Right. In this one, I kept thinking she looked like a uh, blue Roberta. No. Oh, hmm. Yeah, but, so in some in some of these I can – which is another thing – I'm going to make – well, I was going to save this for – I'm going to save this comment for the end. Okay. But I've got some comments on that idea Okay. about obviously – uh, Mr. Burns' preferences. Anyway, thought the idea of a planet-wide plant seemed really unlikely. Um, so, I mean, 
like I mean some of the problems about having a planet-wide plant. Uh, so does that mean that the plant is immortal? I mean, plants normally die, but it's okay because there are other plants around, you know, that are younger, and so the cycle of life. So if this is a planet-wide plant, uh, is it is it is it immortal? I mean, uh, well, or you know, do, do parts of it grow up and it regenerates? Uh, I don't know. It just seems kind of weird. Well, and not only that, but it also has such diverse characteristics. So yep. some look like trees. Some look like Apparently bats. Some others don't. Some look like flying bats. That yeah. What what was that supposed to be? Like well, they said they were seed pod or something. Pods, seed but, pod. Yeah, but that implies that a seed is going to create another another uh, plant. That's a very good point. Why would you have a seed pod if you've got one plant? That's an excellent point, Donovan. Which, by the way, I didn't mention it in the book because I thought it was kind of weird even to have seed pods. Um, but that's another good point. If you got one plant, one super plant, why would you need seed pods? Hmm. Um, I think it was. I think it's great because in here McCoy is <laughs> is funny. He's funny. I mean, he he is he is uh, he is at his curmudgeonly best. Uh, grumpy, sassy old guy, you know, um, who who has plenty of things uh, to get him pissed off, which is it's pretty funny as he reacts to things like that. He's got the ship's uh, computer, who can be pretty pushy, and of course he loves technology that's pushy. Um, and he was complaining about that anti gravity pad he got on to do the tour of the outside of the fence, and of course uh, Thela with her. Um, her bratty ways, plenty of uh, fodder for him to be, uh, you know, to get annoyed with. Um, anyway, I thought it was pretty good. Yeah, no, it's a, it's a good use of his character. Right. I will agree. And I liked how you sang the montage song when uh, on the page where there's, let's see, one, two, three, four, five, six different Thelas in the same panel. <laughs> Doing yes. different things. Doing different things, different parts of the room or, you know, wherever the, the lab is in the ship. Right. So I just thought that uh, – I just assumed that she had gotten uh, the Flash's powers and was literally <laughs> in all six places at once. Yes. Yes. The Flash's powers, exactly. Just, yeah, that is funny though. Like, uh, like that one guy on The Big Bang Theory. Sheldon. Sheldon, that's it. Sheldon, I forgot. I had a mental block there. <laughs> I, I know it's off subject, but in that first season when they were going to a Halloween party or something and all five of them or four of them show up in the room at the same time all wearing Flash costumes. <laughs> and they're all yeah. they're all like, we can't all go as the Flash. And then uh, Raj was like, oh, why don't we just stand, uh, walk in a straight line and then it'll always look like we're running really fast. <laughs> <laughs> this could work which i thought was brilliant <laughs> that there's a lot of parts of that show that is quite brilliant and some excellent nods to star trek yes, yes. and and even though they talk about they, they do st talk about star wars too but i don't know whether it's just more funny but they just seem to have like five times more references to star trek yeah, Star Trek and and comic books are and comic books. A lot are of comic the, books, the main you know. the main fodder for those jokes. Right, right. 
Yeah, now anyway. that you mention it, there's very few Star Wars jokes. Yeah, I mean, they have some references, but usually it's the jokes about, you know, George Lucas, you know, redoing the movies yet again. Right. Or, or things like that, but really pretty few and far between. <laughs> anyway. That's all I have to say about this issue. I, I like it. Yeah, it was good. So, uh, <clears throat> excuse me. The uh, the cover of all four of these, uh, there was two different versions of the cover. Um, the ones that I have has a star field and then a circle. And inside the circle, there's a picture of McCoy and, and usually one other alien. Um, and he's kind of like giving medical advice. So I don't know if your graphic novel has this, but issue number one has McCoy sitting at a table or a chair giving this um, very odd-looking creature a little package. And he's and the little word balloon says, take two Casilvas and call me in the morning. Yep. Diddle-loom boom and who does the alien look like? What does the alien look like? I was trying to think of that. I don't It looks like he a He looks familiar, doesn't he? Uh it looks like a Dianoga from Star Wars. Dianoga. What the well, hell? A Dianoga. <laughs> it was the creature inside of the trash compactor in A New Hope. Oh, it's called a Dianoga? Oh, cool. Yeah. What were you going to say? Would, you would know that. It looks like an Aegis. Oh, yeah, from the from the last one, from the the John yeah. Byrne Aegis, from the uh, from the John Byrne uh, Simon Earth series, right? Yeah, it does kind of because yeah. it has the little tentacle looking things streaming off of its body, right? I mean, the 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 uh, it has a shell. The color's different, right? The color's different because the Aegis were like more like blue, um, and it seems to have some kind of shell on its back and maybe in the front of it. Mm-hmm. But other than that, it's got those weird legs that kind of trail off into kind of sort of tentacles. Yeah. No, once you said it, I see it. You know, speaking of Aegis, uh, I'm still trying to get through this this Gary Seven Assignment Eternity novel. Mm -hmm. And uh, they just got to the part where they're referencing his superiors. And in that novel, they also refer to him as Aegis. So it seems like it might be just the the John Byrne one, which didn't actually – Reference them as Aegis, right? So just kind of. But cool. it didn't. It didn't reference. They didn't Did- reference him by a different name either. No, no, no. Right. No, still good. Yeah, it's all good. It's all good. I just I, I love continuity. You know that. I know you love that. <laughs> all right, ready to jump into number two? Yes, except to mention, which I forgot to mention, is that the published date of this number one was April of 2010. Yes, it was. And I was buying these off the shelf as they came out, so... Cool. This was when I... Well, we just started up the comic, the the podcast, so I was trying to buy up all the Star Trek issues as they were coming out again. Because <laughs> I had, I'd, uh, hadn't bought a lot of IDW up until that time. So, I remember getting these very well. All right, so the next issue, uh, number two, entitled Error, was released May 2010. And I believe everything's the same. The comical cover for this one shows McCoy looking at a four-armed alien individual and McCoy saying, then just don't do that, implying that it must hurt his I'm assuming it's the joke where he says it hurts when I lift my arm like this, and then exactly. the doctor says don't do it. Exactly. 
Ha <laughs> ha, good stuff. All right, so uh, the story starts off with the medical spacecraft Joanna is en route to its next thrilling destination. While traveling uh, within the, the void of space, McCoy is entertaining Thela with tales of the mirror universe. Uh, at the end of the story, McCoy asks for some privacy to draft his newest letter to Kirk. Thela joins Duncan in the pilot's cabin, where Duncan makes light of some of the adventures that McCoy has described, uh, particularly noting time travel, dimensional travel, gods, Nazis, Romans, Wyatt Earp, giant amoeba. So uh, I will agree with Duncan that uh, many of these have been questioned by a lot of people. When you put it that way, I agree. <laughs> All right. So uh, once he's alone, McCoy starts to draft his letter retelling the events that he had just experienced on Gamma Tarsus 7. Uh, they were sent there to investigate some mysterious deaths on the planet. And then we go into a flashback. So the Joanna arrives uh, to the planet that is completely covered in ocean, except for a few small islands that have a total area comparable to that of Manhattan. Uh, the inhabitants called Tarsons uh, have created huge vertical cities that look like they're perhaps miles high on these tiny little islands. Uh, the ship lands, and they are greeted by none other than Montgomery Scott himself. He is on the planet to help inspect the local technology before the planet is properly inducted into the Federation. Uh, he he uh, greets them and he uh, guides them to a building that is completely devoid of doors. And then, much to McCoy's dismay, we learn that all travel within the, the planet are, is done by a primitive form of transporter. Everyone who uses the transporter has to wear these special golden headbands. And then Scotty recounts a tale where he forgot to put the headband headband on at one point and was beamed and referred to the side effects of it felt like he spent a month crawling through every pub in Anderden. Amberden. Aberdeen, lad. Aberdeen. <laughs> So I assume that's a real place. I meant to look that up. It is. It's a nice city. I've been there. Why didn't he pick something that I've been to, like Edinburgh? I don't know. Write him. It's very incon very inconvenient for me. <laughs> All right. Back to the story. So the team is uh, transported, or once, once they are transported, uh, they rematerialize, and McCoy and company are introduced to, their, to the Tarsons for the first time. And these creatures are tall, slender aliens. They have green skin, and they have what looks like ear canals that come down their cheeks a bit. So, a very unique-looking face. But the most distinguished feature on their faces is that their mouths are in a constant form that's similar to that of a human smile. So, McCoy makes references that uh, this will get him in trouble later because he never can quite take them seriously. So, as McCoy is introduced to the aliens in a very drawn-out formality, uh, the whole time McCoy grumbles to himself that he just wants to see the patients as soon as possible. Once he's finally through with the um, introductions, McCoy is taken to the medical ward, and not wanting to go through another formal introduction ceremony, he just barges in. 
Before he can get too far in, though, he is zapped with a stun rod, and next he finds himself waking up about three hours later uh, with Scotty and Thela by his bedside. Scotty informs him that Duncan performed the necessary ceremony and has been working uh, on the patients while McCoy was having his nap. McCoy finds Duncan in the medical ward and learns that there has been no progress made in identifying the fatal ailment. The situation seems to defy Federation scanning technology and has the two doctors quite stumped. Over the next few days, the team performs scans on all non-Tarsan individuals on the planet to see if there's any sign of the ailment in other species. Uh, None of this comes to any avail, though. So one evening, a Tarsan um, government official uh, informs the doctors that uh, it's about to become the High Holy Day. And on this uh, holiday, uh, no tools can be used. So McCoy is shocked that he has to abide by this, but eventually agrees. He and Scotty are having a drink while Duncan and Thela enjoy a romantic walk in the enclosed botanical gardens. Frustrated, McCoy eventually takes off on his own and is walking around the outside of the buildings looking for doors. He eventually finds one, and it leads him to a huge chamber filled with alien technology and a monstrous black sphere. While marveling at the sight, a guard sneaks up behind him and stuns him again. The, uh, he, finds a, he, he wakes up outside, and there is a group of Tarans. Ty- uh, And they are quite angry with him uh, and want retribution for McCoy's trespassing on their sacred site. Uh, Many of the aliens seem ready to lynch him right there. Uh, McCoy convinces them to wait for a Federation legal panel to arrive to decide his fate. The aliens agree for now and place him under house arrest. So he has to stay aboard the Joanna. Later, since they are not yet part of the Federation... Uh, the Tarans decide to go ahead and uh, try McCoy themselves using their laws. As he is being escorted out of the Joanna, he hints to Duncan that he should read his journal. Uh, McCoy is eventually marched towards the transporter pad. Uh, he steps on the pad, but before he dematerializes, he takes off the golden headband. When he rematerializes at the tribunal, he is wearing different clothes and does not know what is going on. To him... They had only just arrived. Duncan and Thela soon show up with McCoy's log. In it, McCoy suspects that the transporter actually resets the cells to the form when the individual first was beamed. Uh, this would keep the this would keep the aliens from ever aging, so they always were being reset to their previous uh, younger forms. Uh, the bands were created so that while their bodies were being reset their individual minds would be able to be transferred into their younger bodies. So if you beamed without your band, you basically were reset to the very first time you were ever beamed on that planet. McCoy tells the tribunal that the um, consistent use of the transporter tech is what is eventually killing them. Uh, The tribunal agree that they will continue to use the tech even if it means that they will eventually die. And they berate McCoy a little bit uh, when he argues uh, that they are making the wrong choice. So they basically have an option to die 
die forever young or die as old withered individuals. And there's a great line where the, I guess, magistrate of the tribunal tells McCoy, who are you to say your way is better? Which I thought was pretty good. Uh, we then jump to the present, and uh, we see Kirk on the bridge of the Enterprise. He says that a certain aspect of the new configuration does not seem right. Uh, just then, Scotty walks in and says that he will get to work right on it. He hands McCoy one of, or he hands Kirk one of McCoy's letters. Kirk invites Scotty out uh, for a drink, and as they leave, the bridge dissolves into the grid pattern of the holodeck. The end. That's pretty cool. And uh, by the way, <clears throat> interesting to see holodeck technology, um, which we first saw on Next Gen, but. I mean, in revisionist stuff like this, did, did we ever see holodeck technology um, in Kirk and Bones' time? Yes, we did. In uh, the 1970 episode of Star Trek the Animated Series <laughs> entitled <laughs> The Jester. Not canon. Not canon. Okay. It, it is canon. Because <laughs> I've never seen that before except the next gen. Cool. Okay. So they. So how sophisticated was it? In that cartoon, oh, that cartoon, that Saturday morning cartoon. It was very sophisticated. Hmm. And then uh, after that, we and before the next gen came out, we also saw it in some of the issues of DC Comics that we read. Uh, or actually, it was that annual where the uh, Enterprise was coming into space dock for the last time. I think it was called The Final Mission. Uh, Star Trek Annual Number 2, I think it was. And in that, they had a holodeck type thing where Captain Kirk was pretending to be Father Time or some sort of deity. And he they were kind of some sort of initiation thing with Chekhov. Oh, and, right. And it goes awry and right. Snake becomes real and ends up poisoning Chekhov and all the other good stuff. Yeah. So all of that, okay. those two references actually happened before the next gen ever came out. So. Right. But yeah, this is definitely a nod to Next Gen because it actually disappears into the, the grid-like pattern that we see in Next, Next Gen, Gen stuff. Right. Right. Cool. And of course, you know, this could have been just more like, like projection things. Uh, however, Kirk is sitting on a chair, and so is another crewman. So it looks like they're actually on things that appear solid to them. Oh, yeah, absolutely. So I guess it's uh, pretty close to uh, next-gen tech, I guess. Right. Which is interesting that we never saw it in any of the movies. Well, I think I mentioned this before. Um, originally, that was supposed they were supposed to have that technology in Season 3 uh, of the original series, but due to budgetary constraints, they were never able to do it. Right. Um, so... You know, it was in that that Star Trek Bible thing that they came out with uh, that they gave all the writers. So I'm assuming that's where the the comic book companies got a hold of it and got wrote stories it. based on it. Yeah. But cool. but no, it's cool. I like it. Uh, I, and uh, I mean, well, they they definitely had the money to do it in the movies. I, well, yeah. I guess they just didn't have an oppor you know a situation to bring it up in in the yeah, storylines. It's, it's not like it. Yeah, I mean. <clears throat> would you, 
the only place I could think you would want to put it is Rathacon, the Kobayashi Maru. Yeah, they could have done that uh, using holodeck rather than having a real stage. It was not a, a real stage. It was the real Enterprise. I mean, they were really on the bridge of the Enterprise when all when everything was blowing up and stuff, because it was a training ship, right? Yes. Mm-hmm. Right. Which I always thought was hilarious, because you have like the most <clears throat> senior people involved in that. People, and then they're just pretending like they're dead on the floor. Yeah. <laughs> but at least if you're doing that on a ship, an active ship, that has you know senior people just hanging around. Uh, as opposed to what they did in Star Trek Eleven, the movie, where it was more of a, a set, a stage, uh, a room, simulator right. kind of thing. Which is what I think it would be. Yeah. But anyway. So what do you think of this one? I, I, I liked it. Uh, I was not as I didn't like this one nearly as much as the first one. Um, but uh, it was fine. It was fine. Um. I thought it was very interesting, the idea of them being uh, using the transporter technology to reset their bodies. Mm-hmm. It's like, you know, that's, that always, that has occurred to me in the past. I mean, th- I mean, all, you know, the th- when you really start thinking about transporter technology, you start thinking about the old thing, well, it really isn't taking your part, you know, taking you apart and sending you over a radio wave and then really reassembling your same parts. It's basically making a copy of you. <laughs> So, right. uh, and, and they just handily get rid of the original, you know, somehow all the time. But if you really start thinking about it, it's like, well, you could have two of you kind of like the uh, thing that happened to Riker, but, and then other possibilities are things like this. I mean, if they're able to scan your body so perfectly that they can recreate you at a distance, uh, complete with your memories and everything. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and, and as they bring up in the story, technically speaking, with your soul and everything. I mean, yeah. that's a pretty good copy. So right. if you could do that, then you could do something like they're talking about in this comic. Just reload the memories from, you know, from up until the time that you transported, you know, 20 years after your first transport. And bammo, you've got all your memories and you're back to being, uh, you know, 20 years younger. Right, and they've even done that in an episode of The Next Generation. I can't remember the title of the name, but it was in season two. Uh, Dr. Pulaski went to some planet, and she started aging really fast, and they couldn't find a way to revert her back to her original age. Yeah. So they came up with something where they could use some of her DNA and was able to beam her and reform her DNA to her younger self. I don't remember that episode. Huh. So so they did that to cure a malady of some kind, which made her old. Yeah, she she aged that. She aged really fast and I think she cured the ailment. She cured whatever was making these people old. Right. But there was no way to revert them back to their younger form. So they right. had they came up with this this idea of using some of her hair and reconstituting her DNA. And when they beamed her, they would reform her in her younger self. Well, heck, if you do that once, it's like, (laughs) do it all the time. Exactly. Jeez, it's like the fountain of youth. I know, that's what I thought Mm -hmm. when I saw it. That's what I thought. And I was like, well, these actors are never going to get any older. (laughs) 
And, you know, all these different technological possibilities, like uh, like having robots to do all your work and stuff, yet the Federation never seems to fall prey to these things. I mean, for the most part. It's like, boy, they got a lot of, a lot of self-control. Jeepers. Yeah, that episode was called Unnatural Selection. Unnatural Selection. Yeah, I, I don't remember that one. Um, I, 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 the actress who played Pulaski, uh, good actress. I just wasn't that crazy about the character. Well, they tried to make her a female version of McCoy, so she was a, a kind of a curmudgeon. Yeah. And they tried to have the Spock-McCoy rapport with her and Data, but it, it never quite rang true because, I mean, Spock would give as good as he got when he was sparring with McCoy, oh, yeah. whereas Data, who was supposed to be truly emotionless, it just seemed like he was just taking it all the time. And you, and she just came across as being this really hateful person that was <laughs> ragging on poor Data, who just oh, stood there and took it. Poor Data. <laughs> yeah, anyway, I was happy to see Gates back when she came back. Uh, I thought the idea of, of a water planet that has almost no surface area uh, you know, th- that, like, adds up to about the size of Manhattan. I thought that was really interesting. I mean, what kind of ad- adaptations would you have to make to make a, a, a fairly old um, civilization work? And them building everything straight up is really interesting, I thought. Yeah, and they do mention that these guys, uh, the... Therans, or however you pronounce their name, yeah. uh, that they're not indigenous to that planet, so they're they're actually colonists, they there or, or they crash landed or whatever. Um, because you know, every time I've read science fiction stuff where it has to do with um, a water-based planet, it was always water-based life forms. So, like in Star Wars, the the Mon Calamari and the Quarren and stuff, they were <laughs> the Calamari. I love they that. were. They were from a, a water planet, and sure. so they, they looked like a fish and a squid guy. But sure. and, and if you really naturally evolved on a water planet, that makes perfect sense. Well, but Voyager had an episode guys... where they went to a water planet, and uh, Enterprise, they had the, the water species as part of the Zindi, which I thought was good. Right. Yep. So so water-based life forms, there there is – Examples of that in the Star Trek universe, too. Sure. Another interesting uh, franchise is Stargate, Stargate Atlantis, where they're, they use their technology not to uh, build up on an existing piece of land, because they do have islands on the uh, planet that Stargate Atlantis took, took uh, place in. But they basically built uh, a city that just floats. It just you know hangs there on the water. So that's another interesting approach. Well, yeah, and I, I was – when I read that, when they said the size of Manhattan, I, I kind of jokingly thought to myself, well, is this the Manhattan from 2010 or is this the Manhattan of the 23rd century? Because you know, as in Japan and as in everywhere in the world, they're adding to all these islands. So islands are, are getting larger and larger as they reclaim land and, and build buildings on top of that. So I was just thought it was funny if if Manhattan Island even existed in the 23rd century. Hmm. Yeah, I I didn't realize that they're increasing the size of Manhattan Island, but they certainly did uh, Boston 
with landfill. So they certainly could be doing that in Manhattan. I just didn't know they were doing it. I and they could do it in the future. Yeah, I don't know for sure if they are doing it in Manhattan, but I know they did it in – I mean they do it in Tokyo and things like that. So I would assume yeah. that eventually if if they don't already do it, they're they're going to. Sure. Maybe one of our uh, New York listeners can chime in and let us know. One of our many New York listeners. <laughs> and let us know, guys, gals. I really didn't like these uh, Tarsians. I just, I just thought they were jerks. I mean, they're always like smiling. Don't trust them. Don't trust them at all. <laughs> they can't help that they're smiling. I, I don't care. I don't trust them. Um, and, I mean, their stupid grins, especially as the uh, comic book went on, was really kind of annoying. And then they kept on shocking McCoy, even though there was supposed to be some pleasure to that shocking thing. Still, they kept on, they kept on shocking McCoy all the time, which actually was a little on the funny side, because uh, of course there's another thing to get for him to get pissed off about. But uh, you know, just you know, I, I just didn't like him. <laughs> uh, it didn't bother me. Um, I did think the grin was a little weird. It didn't really add anything to the story. I didn't think. Yeah, well, it's not only their grin. It's just that they they had a certain way to do things, and and I really hate the stories because they had ones like this in uh, in Next Gen, and I suppose they might have had something in the original series. But uh, some of these societies that have such stringent rules, and as offworlders, uh, you transgress one of their precious rules or something. That of course to the to the Earthers are like, who cares? Um, and then they're going to do something, like actually maybe kill you or something, or incarcerate you or something. It's like, I hate that. Yeah, I think every Star Trek series has, has had that episode. Yeah. So in, in <clears throat> Next Gen, they were going to kill Wesley because he right. his ball went into the wrong area or something, into a garden or something. Yeah, a garden or something. So it kills a plant, big deal. Yeah, and then on Voyager, um, they were going to do that to Janeway because she put her arms on her hips and uh that was some sort of obscene gesture damn her and then on enterprise they were going to kill archer because porthos peed on a tree <laughs> <laughs> he peed on a sacred tree ah uh, you know you don't see porthos nearly enough in that show so Dude, I love I'm, ha- I'm happy when he pops up i love that dog well, you know, part of the reason we have a beagle as our first beagle is because of Porthos. Yeah, I uh, there was a person selling. We went to a baseball game, a, a little league baseball game, and somebody brought a, a little beagle puppy mm-hmm. uh, that they were selling four hundred dollars. <laughs> I would want that dog just because of Porthos, but I'd rather have four hundred dollars. Yeah. <laughs> My wife kept on like insisting. That we get a dog. I mean, she really wanted a dog, and it's like I love I love dogs, other people's dogs, but you know she you know she saw I liked Enterprise, and she saw they had a dog on there and it was a beagle. It's like, well, what if we get a beagle? It's like, well, if we got a dog, I mean, a beagle would be pretty cool. And before you know, we have a beagle. <laughs> she saw the opening and she went for it. <laughs> oh, I thought the tiny short-range communicator they used was pretty cute. I mean, it even had the traditional flip-up thing, but it was, like, tiny. Yeah, this is the one where they slip to McCoy before he goes into house arrest. Right, exactly. Yeah, I didn't really even understand why they had to do that. He, They're both in the same ship. So 
wouldn't they have intercom in the ship where they could still talk to McCoy as he's in his cabin? You'd think so. You'd so I think so. I didn't really understand why they needed the the little. Yeah, I thought it was cute though. It was cute. Also, um, and I'm going to mention this up until we get to the fourth issue, where we actually hear a time period mention how long the three of them, uh, Thela, Duncan, and uh, and McCoy, are on the ship. Mm-hmm. But finally, it, I mean, this is the second issue, and I thought it odd that Thela and Duncan uh, are already talking about having kids. At marriage. Well, it's just an off-handed so, comment, right? Oh, but I think they're smooching, and, you know, they're talking seriously about kids and stuff. So um, even though they don't come out and say it, I think a little time must have transpired between the first issue and the second one. And certainly we find out, well, we'll find out soon, by the fourth issue that a year has gone by. So Right. At first I thought, man, this, this thing's all kind of going fast when we did issue three already. And, and and you know obviously they they you know they were they were very close and everything, uh, but then now seeing that even in the second issue they're talking about having kids, so they must be jumping around in time a little bit. The story, right? That's all I have. So shall we go on to number four? Yes, please. Excellent. Okay, so issue number four is an interesting issue in that it is made up of two roughly equal stories as far as number of pages that are totally separate standalone stories. So in ways, it's kind of like a bonus because you get two fully mature stories in one issue, uh, and and they're just kind of shortish stories. So because we have two different stories, the first one called Hosts and the second one called Scalpel, um, I propose that we go through the synopsis of Hosts and then talk about it, and then we go through the synopsis of Scalpel and then talk about it, rather than trying to go through a synopsis of both stories, which have nothing to do with each other, uh, and then try to, you know, comment on both. Yep. So, I will begin. Okay, so issue number four, uh, published date July 2010. Uh, all the people involved are the same, so I'm not going to go through that. Uh, and let's begin with the first story, Hosts. The story opens in a nice beauty shot of the USS Yorktown, Orbiting the planet of the clones. And note that this is the continuation from the third issue, which we covered in last week's episode with Gary Seven and company. In the bustling transporter room C, Doc McCoy is seeing off the team of volunteers that will transport to the planet and attempt to help the clones to establish a healthy, productive human civilization. In particular, McCoy is bordering on mushy as he says goodbye to Thela and Duncan after a year of practicing frontier medicine together. They all beam down. Next, Gary Seven and Roberta Lincoln enter the transporter room as they prepare to return back to their own time, uh, which is 1970 to be exact. Since McCoy has to return to Earth to report on the loss of his ship, he suggests they travel together to Earth. He states Jim Kirk would have a thousand questions to ask them. Gary turns down the proposal since he and Roberta's bosses want them back into their own time frame. Suddenly, Roberta and Gary turn into green outlines and transport back to their home time and place, complements of their Beta 5 computer. Next, McCoy moves onto the sickbay to see, of all people, Christine Chapel. 
Christine has a diagnostic challenge that requires Dr. McCoy's special expertise. In isolation suits, the two doctors visit Lieutenant Mbega, who Christine says is sick, but her vital signs show nothing amiss. Christine asks her to read a 3,000-word form uh, on a pad in incredibly small font, which she does so at a glance with full retention. Mbega is the third crewman to show these heightened abilities. They come out of the decontamination center and get out of their isolation suits. Chapel states she has been looking for references to these types of conditions and found the closest case is that of Gary Mitchell and Dr. Elizabeth Daner's transformation into superhumans that you'll all remember from the original Kirk pilot uh, and one of the early episodes in, in original Trek called Where No Man Has Gone Before, which of course you all knew as soon as I said Mitchell and Dana. Daner. Uh, they established the, that the afflicted have been exposed to no strange energy field at the edge of the galaxy, like Mitchell and Daner were. However, two of them were on a recent landing party mission to Sigma Thernia 3b, a moon of a gas giant. The landing party found some very strange life forms, including birds that build extremely complex nests. Not long after their return, crewman Mahler starts to dismantle the communication station on the bridge with a happy, carefree way about him. Eventually, he and a second landing party member die of brain cell disruption. Their brains are essentially burned out, for lack of a better description. Even more worrying is that Mbega was not on the landing party. So whatever affected the two landing party members is spreading to the ship's general population. McCoy is examining scans of Mahler's brain tissue when the Admiral calls Dr. Chapel, requesting her to get up to the bridge on the double. Half the bridge crew thinks it's playtime and they are endangering the ship. When they get on the bridge, Chapel asks McCoy to administer sedatives, sedatives to all that are infected. McCoy discovers that one of the affected crewmen is already dead, so the disease is accelerating. Suddenly, emergency calls come into the bridge from all over the ship. The disease is clearly getting out of control. Chief Nurse Alopola puts a call out to Chapel to return to sick bay immediately. In sick bay, Dr. Charles Gibney is in the isolation ward doing something to Lieutenant Mbega with a universal translator of all things. Chapel tells him to get out of there, but Gibney insists everything's okay, and he has never thought more clearly. He says it's not a disease affecting her. It's like DNA on Earth. DNA was there first, then life forms followed. That is why he is trying to completely repress Mbega's brain functions. Chapel stops him by pumping the isolation chamber with tranquilizer gas. While Chapel rushes in wearing an isolation suit to check Umbega, McCoy starts to think Gibney may actually be onto something. McCoy wants to do to Gibney what he tried to do to Umbega. McCoy places a neural suppressor device on Gibney's forehead and takes his brain activity as low as he dares to. With Gibney's brain waves reduced to almost nothing, a second set of brain waves is detected. McCoy uses a universal translator 
to try to communicate with the second consciousness. Later on, on the bridge, McCoy, Chapel, and Gibney explain that the afflicted minds were intoxicated or overwhelmed by a second consciousness that apparently evolved naturally on Sigma Thierna 3b. This consciousness evolved before life did on 3b, oddly enough. When life did eventually evolve, the consciousness inserted itself into the life forms as they began to evolve over the eons. The consciousness had the effect of increasing the overall intelligence of the life forms, like the birds, but also inhibited the physical development of their brains. So in their native habitat, they never had to coexist with an advanced brain like a human brain. When they did enter the landing party's brains, the effect was intoxicating for the crewmen and increased their intelligence. Unfortunately, continued exposure burned out their brains. The Admiral asks what, what is the solution to this problem since people are dying. So Chapel tells her what they can do is now that they can communicate with the aliens, the aliens have offered to limit their activities until they get back to 3B and back to their own native environment. So that should save all the remaining undead, you know, the crewmen that haven't died so far. Until they arrive, the alien consciousness has offered to temporarily boost the intelligence of volunteers. If any of them take, up, take them up on the offer, the Yorktown will have the smartest crew in Starfleet. End of story. So, Donnie, what do you think? Whew, that was a long one. <laughs> to be honest, I didn't really care for this one. Neither did I. It, it reminded me of, you know, the Naked Now and uh, the Naked Time uh, episodes of the original series and The Next Generation. Right. Where people act drunk. Um, but here, I guess they're supposed to be drunk children, which brings weird things to mind uh drunk children with incredible intelligence all right so i don't know yeah i i think they asked you to swallow a little bit too much here uh in the story but and the bad thing is is it it really feels like it was the at least the first like half of it you know because this thing's only 11 pages long the first half of it is more of just wrapping up what happened in issue number three so Fila and Duncan go off to the planet and then Roberta and Gary Seven you know have their goodbyes and then they go off right so by the time all that happens there's been at least four pages eaten up and then so you have eight pages or less to tell this pretty meaty story right and things happen fast I mean uh, McCoy's just brought into what's going on then immediately they're called to the bridge um, and then not long after being on the bridge, uh, basically they're getting calls from all over the ship. So this thing is, is affecting a significant portion of the crew very quickly. And then I'm thinking about, okay, all hell's breaking loose here. Um, you know, how the heck are they going to figure out what the problem is, uh, so quickly to be able to save everybody or at least, you know, minimize the number of deaths. And then, well, we find out Mm. it does move very quickly. Yeah. Um, okay, so maybe I'm a little bit too parochial with my narrow view of how Earth developed and stuff, but, or the beings on Earth developed, but (laughs) as far as I know, 
You can't have intelligence popping out of thin air and floating around. I mean, it has to develop over long periods of time, um, you know, within physical bodies, uh, in particular brains, you know, uh, to give the consciousness a place to exist. Um, of course, you know, there's a whole idea of God. I mean, where did God come from? But, you know, if you put that on the side, you know, the kind of stuff that, that we're familiar with, uh, you know, all forms of, of intelligence, even if it's rudimentary, things like dogs and stuff, I mean, it all came out of a physical form. It didn't just pop out of nowhere. So, I don't know. Uh, it, just, it just asked you to swallow, a, swallow something that is outside of our normal experience if you take into account non-like religious religious things right and uh, yeah i mean are they implying that this being or whatever this hive mind type thing is some sort of godlike creature because i didn't i mean i i, I just I, assumed it was some sort of <sighs> malevolent entity that we get in so many star trek episodes yeah there are there are a lot of non-corporeal creatures that pop out in in Star Trek stories. That is true. It's just, I mean, a lot of times, you know, they're they're the advanced yeah, the... versions of people that or beings that used to have bodies. But yeah, in some cases, they've always been non-corporeal. But huh? but no, I agree with you. It it didn't make sense. His explanation to me that didn't really make sense. The how a consciousness came about or an intelligence came about before DNA that yeah that is perplexing it is very perplexing so uh, also in here we find out that that issues 1 through 4 are basically kind of condensed uh, you know it basically covers a year right i just assume that there's other adventures going on that that sure. we just don't get the issues of exactly right right it's just not until this fourth or the first half of the fourth issue do you actually find out a real time period. Yeah, and speaking of time periods, I thought it was odd where Gary Seven says that he's only been away for three days, um, which, you know, based on the events that happened in start uh, issue number three, you know, I assume that that he and Roberta were on that planet investigating the Klingons for a good long time. And then come to find out that that time plus whatever time they spent here on the um, Yorktown, only three days have passed. Right. Seemed seemed a little quick. It seemed a little quick, too. But apparently, I had the same impression that, that they were around prior to McCoy and Company's arrival. Right. But it sounds like they weren't around that much before McCoy and Company got there. Yeah. So that's uh, that's interesting timing. So my last comment is I, I really liked how, you know, based on the time frame where this story is supposed to be taking place, it's supposed to be uh, just prior to the Star Trek the motion picture. And we have the ship hasn't been refit yet, but the crew is wearing the new uniforms. I right. just I kind of like that. I think we've talked about it in some of the comic strips where we had scenarios where old ships were around and, and people were wearing new uniforms. I don't know. I just I think that's a cool idea, and, and it's a realistic idea. Not all the ships would be refit at the same time. 
Oh, right, right. And this seems like, like the first ship that was refitted. I mean, it seems like they're working through a lot of technological problems. Right. So. So, anyways, I, I, I like that part. I thought it was yeah. a good attention to, to detail. Me too. Uh, it's always good to see number one in a story like that. The Admiral. Exactly. Yeah, but did, did it, so um, they don't actually call her by anything other than the Admiral, right? I don't no. remember them doing that. They don't. Okay, and what's your last name again? Uh, well, in the comic book continuity, they call her Robbins. Robbins, that's right. So Admiral Robbins. Yeah. <clears throat> but they don't call her that. Um, and they certainly don't call her number one. Because as was pointed out, I guess you'll just have to get a new name. As that as that one crewman said to her, as she was uh, potentially going to be upgraded to captain. Anyway, yeah, that was uh, Serta. Serta. Yeah. Serta. There you go. The helmsman or helmswoman. Uh, just one last thing. I guess I do have one more thing. I, I just like uh, in some of these pages where you have three panels, and one panel is the computer talking, the next panel is Doctor Chapel, and then the next panel is the admiral. And you're just reading it going, man, Margell Barrett was busy in this story. <laughs> she played three characters. Exactly. Exactly. And that, that is interesting that they, uh, you know, they, they, they drew the Dr. Chapel and uh, the Admiral, you know, different enough <laughs> that you never thought they were the same person. Yeah. And uh, if you look at the seventh page of that, this story, there's this awesome picture where Nurse, Ch uh, oops, sorry, Doctor Chapel's in the morgue and the Admiral's on the bridge, and he purposely puts them both in the same panel, but with a little line through it, so it looks like a split screen. So I'm sure he did that on purpose so that it would, you know, you would get the feeling that this was a split screen with the same actress in both. Exactly. <laughs> I just thought that was awesome. Yeah, and and if you and as you look at it, the noses are similar. But yeah, but but I you know he obviously definitely bobbed the hair because uh, I don't remember ever seeing her with hair that short before in the original series, or uh, in the movie, or in the movie, uh, and of course they make it very dark brown hair, and then of course you know that uh, the admiral is very gray, and and an older woman, but the, you know there are similarities in the mouth, and the nose, uh, if you take a good close look. Mm. Yeah, no, I thought it was good. Yeah. Again, you know, Byrne is good, and obviously he's uh, he's a fan. So I love I love all the extra little things he throws into these stories. Okay, should we go to the second story of issue four? Let's do that. The second one is called Scalpel. The story opens with a view of the Vagan Queen in orbit around Palvatleon Four. McCoy is at it again, writing letters to Jim Kirk. This time, he's telling Jim of his visit to uh, Palvation Leon IV, which the Vegan Queen's captain says is a true paradise. McCoy takes a shuttle down to the planet to visit a friend whose area of study is the worst of intellect uh, of intelligent species. Uh, w whatever that means. Um, his friend Alex's daughter, Sophie, picks up McCoy at the spaceport and calls him Uncle Leonard, so they must be very close. 
They speed off in a cool-looking hover car for a six-minute flight to their house, which turns out to be a palatial mansion. Sophie explains that this is not that this was not his work that paid for the house, but rather his antiquities hobby that turned into a moneymaker. McCoy is surprised when Alex joins them in a 23rd century version of a wheelchair. Thesing Barre syndrome is what put him in the wheelchair and will likely take his life eventually, but Alex says that is a battle he is no longer interested in fighting. McCoy tells him he can't just give up, but Alex moves the conversation on to why he asked McCoy to come. Alex asks Sophie to excuse them, to which she comments on the fact that her father continues to keep secrets from her. Alone, Alex opens up and tells McCoy what he has to show him is of great importance. They enter a turbo lift and descend three kilometers into the planet. The elevator opens into a cave that contains what looks like some kind of control panel with multiple large monitors and touch controls. Alex tells McCoy the tunnel and cave was carved out 10,000 years ago. When McCoy comments on how new-looking the cavern and the machine is, Alex responds that the technology that made this machine is far beyond anything the Federation has. It is so advanced that that it, and even the cavern itself, is being self-renewed using some form of transporter tech to continuously replace parts. It totally replaces itself once every hundred years or so. Alex goes on to demonstrate the machine's abilities by showing McCoy a visual recording of when he, Sophie, and the rest of his archaeological team arrived at Palvatleon IV. Back in those days, they came to do a study on how the indigenous people's population was adversely affected by exposure to the Federation in the days before the Prime Directive. Their local guide, Carlos, which is the closest the humans can come to actually pronouncing his real name, worked closely with them, and in their second year of research, Carlos took Alex's team to the site of a deep tunnel that eventually led to the cave McCoy and Alex currently occupy. They discovered that the dust and debris covering the control panels of the machine uh, that was actually powered on and responded to human touch. The exciting discovery was marred by religious fundamentalists that attacked the dig and, all, and killed most of Alex's team, including Sophie. Shocked at the revelation, McCoy asked what he was talking to if it was not the real Sophie. Was it a robot? Was it a clone? Alex said that it was the real Sophie and continued with his explanation. After her death, he threw himself into his work. Even the government-sanctioned revenge killings of the zealots responsible for killing Sophie and most of his team was unsatisfying. Over time, he discovered the machine had the ability to let the operator manipulate the thoughts of people in the past. His first try was to tell himself how to open the ancient door that barred the passageways into the caves, which sped up their discovery. Later, he tried to alter the man's thoughts that killed Sophie. When he found he could not 
affect his mind due to the extreme emotion he was feeling, he went back in time further and finally influenced the man's parents to never meet. Therefore, the murderer was never born. When he returned to his home that evening, Sophie was there doing the dishes. McCoy broke in to tell Alex that what he did was extremely dangerous. He told him that he accidentally prevented someone from dying, Edith Keeler, in the past, which had catastrophic consequences. Alex said he knows that since he read McCoy's memoirs, and because of his experience, he thinks McCoy is the perfect person to take over his work. He goes on to explain that he totally changed Palvatleon IV by reaching further back in time and implanting his implanting ideas of peace and prosperity into key people in history that turned the society away from their tendency towards war. He turned the planet into a paradise envied throughout the Federation. McCoy states that if it was possible to do that, the original inventors of the machine would have done it. Alex explains that they did try to change too much too fast and ultimately the original makers of the, of the machine failed. Alex said he used a surgeon's scalpel method rather than a woodman's axe to achieve what he had achieved. As he begins to tell McCoy exactly what he wants him to do, he suddenly keels over and appears to have died. Later with Alex dying in his bed and Sophie at his side, she tells McCoy the doctors said the end would likely come without warning. Sophie says at least Alex was able to tell McCoy the big secret that he felt was so important. When Sophie leaves the room, Alex makes a final attempt to talk to McCoy and can only tell him to do the right thing. As McCoy writes, continues writing to Kirk about what the right thing to do really is, he states Kirk is unlikely to even read the letter McCoy is currently writing. In the end, McCoy states the hard lessons he and Kirk discovered as to how even one person's presence or absence can change the world. That hard lesson drove McCoy's decision to do the right thing. But it is not the right thing that Alex wanted him to do. McCoy, writes, McCoy ends the letter by writing to Kirk he will never receive the letter because he will never have written it. The scene cuts to Earth in a huge hangar where Scotty and Kirk are floating on a hovering platform while they expect, inspect one of the Enterprise's new warp nacelles. They talk about how the refit will have swapped out virtually every part of the old Enterprise. Lieutenant LaRoche joins them compliments of levitation boots like Spock wore in Star Trek V. She reports that he has that she has checked three times and there is no letter from Dr. McCoy this month. Scotty and Kirk talk about whether there is anything wrong with McCoy but in the end Kirk states that McCoy is fine. There's probably just nothing interesting happening to him lately. End of story. So what do you think he did exactly? That is a really good question. And that's one of the things I like best about this story. I do like the story. I mean, there are things you have to just swallow and move on. But I like the idea that they left it very open as to exactly what McCoy did. 
So that way the reader gets to think about it themselves and have conversations like this and come up with what they think happened. Lots of chew on here. I, I, I like it. Okay, so, you know, what exactly did he do? Um, uh, did he go did he go back and influence Alex so that he or maybe the um, the other guy Carlos so that they never discovered the cave and the machine? Um, did he allow Sophie to die? Um, you know, very interesting. All we know for sure that he did is that he didn't write the letter to Kirk. Um, right. So other than that, yeah, it's kind of an interesting intellectual question. Uh, I think the most effective thing would have been. If he would have gone back and influenced Carlos to not find the, uh, the you know, the, the cavern in the first place. But the funny thing is, then you get into a paradox, don't you? If he goes back in time and he never discovered the cavern, then how could have Alex, you know, done what he did and <laughs> tell McCoy about it? And then McCoy been in a position that he could have gone back in the time and influenced Carlos and, you know. Well, it's an alternate future. So you're going back in time and you're creating alternate futures. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. So, yeah, I, 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 based on what happened with Edith Keeler uh, in the Guardian of Forever episode, I'm thinking he, he just kept, I think that she, he, he, he set it up so that she would still end up dying, but he would never find the computer. And and the only thing wrong with that, and I think that's very possible, is um, did the zealots come and attack them because they found the uh, machine and stuff, or and I think this is probably more likely, they're just they just came on them because they were just studying the planet, or yeah, because they were off-worlders or whatever. Yeah, because I mean they're there to study. The effects of war, right? I mean, well, okay. This, did they this, say war? Well, I mean, but these people are are in the middle of a war because, I mean, when they're doing the social development or whatever they're doing, I mean, they're those buildings and stuff have been totally trashed, and they don't look like okay. archaeological type digs. Well, um, or are they? I, I think that's an assumption on your part that you're probably right about, but I. You know, I read it a few times, and I didn't see anywhere where they said there was war. Uh, and even, you know, I, I had said the adverse effects of the exposure to uh, Starfleet prior to the uh, the non-interference the non directive, um, the prime directive. But really, the only evidence that there was something bad going on was, and I, and I will agree with you, I mean, it's a fair amount of evidence, is they're picking through a lot of rubble, building right. rubble. You know, mounds of building rubble, which gives you the impression that things weren't that good on the planet. So I think you're reading some things into it that maybe was intended, but I I don't I don't remember them actually saying some of that stuff, but yeah, explicitly. No, you're right. But I mean, this is a pretty meaty tale that he had to tell in 11 pages. Right. So, uh, you know, uh, I just fill in the blanks with what I think he's going for. But yeah, and you're probably I, right. I might be wrong. But I'm just assuming the whole knowing McCoy, you know, as much as he, you know, considers her his niece or whatever. Right. I think when he says has to do the right thing, I'm kind of thinking that's what he's having to do. Right. Yeah. So really the question is just how far back is he going to change things? Right. So if he does go back in time, 
to uh, allow her to die, but still not find the caverns, then that would make sense why um, Alex never asked him to come to the planet, so therefore he would have had no reason to write that particular letter. I mean, he could be someplace else where he could be writing a letter. It just wouldn't be one about that planet. All right. I like McCoy's hubcap suitcase at the beginning when he's at the airport or the spaceport. <laughs> okay. I've never seen a hubcap suitcase before, so have to make things look different, futuristic, so it looks like a hubcap that McCoy's carrying around. Right. Could I also... Okay, so I'm going to mention one more thing, and then I think I'm pretty much done with this one. I think Byrne definitely has a thing for skinny little ladies. Skinny, young little ladies. Uh, Thela, Lieutenant LaRoche, uh, Sophie, you know, uh, they all have different colored hair, and in one case, blue skin, but they're all petite little things, uh, young little things, uh, and uh, and I'm not complaining about that, mind you. I'm just making an observation. Yep. I'm not gonna. I would not disagree with you. He he doesn't he he doesn't draw meaty women much. Uh, and uh, yeah, there you go. Now speaking of her though, um, I forgot what her name is. Sophie, right? Yep. Yeah. Um. When she picks him up, she's wearing this little dress that it looks like she's wearing the same dress later, except one time she's wearing pants and the other time she's not. Is that supposed to be the same dress, you think? Well, when she picks him up, it's a pink thing. Yeah. With a very open back. Then at dinner in the evening, she's definitely got a different dress with like okay. a, like a, like a, like a, like a drop back kind of thing. But they're both short things. And one slid on slid up on the side, which looks pretty cool. And yeah, and then the next thing, it's all flashbacks with the. I guess you're right. I guess they are different. They're different, but she looks quite nice in both. Pretty skinny. She's tiny. Let me see what else did I have on this one. Um, Oh, I like the computer. It looked just like the Bat Cave. (laughs) Yeah, the the machine. Um, it's got the psychedelic 60s kind of uh, look to it. Right. It looks like the Batcave? Yeah, just the layout looks like Batman's computer there in the cave. (laughs) Yeah, instead of showing, like, something akin to what real computers have on their screens, a lot of text or maybe some kind of graphics, it's swirly, psychedelic, bright, colorful, um, yeah, patterns. Yeah. Well, that's just showing the time vortex. The time, time that, uh, the time tunnel that the time tunnel that Doctor Who travels through. Oh, I thought you were talking about the time tunnel, which was a TV show. Oh, anything uh, else on this one? That's all I have on that one. All right, I did like it. I like it. I like the f- the first one was really good. The last one was really good. I really liked number three. Not as crazy about uh, two and and uh, two and four and a half. Yeah, I'll agree with. You. I-, I like two though. So uh, did you? Yeah. yeah. But anyways, so uh, I did do some looking at John Byrne uh, while, while we were talking. And it seems that uh, there – actually, and I, and I knew this. Uh, there is another miniseries he did that's based on Romulans. Huh. So we, we will have another whole miniseries 
uh, written in and art done by John Byrne, plus some random miniseries or uh, one shots. But the interesting part I wanted to just go over real quick is, and this is as of you know mid 2011. Mm-hmm. It says that uh, he has three future miniseries is greenlit by IDW. Mm-hmm. Uh, one of them is uh, it's going to be the uh, the events that led up to Robert April taking command of the Enterprise for the first time, hmm. which we've kind of already seen in the crew, so I'm mm-hmm. curious to see how that would fit in. Uh, and um, it says th- the third one is a second assignment Earth series, which we talked about last week, I think. Mm-hmm. And then the other one is a um, – I guess he's getting pushback on this one. Is he wants to do a Baylock and David Bailey story? Baylock ah! from the carbonite <laughs> maneuver. The carbonite maneuver. Yeah. yeah. So that's actually kind of a cool idea. And then the uh, the other one that he keeps trying <sighs> to get made uh, with IDW, but it it's not getting approved, and probably never will be. Mm-hmm. Is an assignment Earth and Doctor Who crossover. <laughs> but I guess. Well, why not? It's the same. It's the same franchise. Yeah. So I guess. I guess Paramount has given their okay. It's the BBC that that's not allowing it. It's like why not? Exactly. I mean, it's a crossover. You, crossovers are good for everybody. Exactly. It's a win-win. <laughs> So, anyways, I just thought it was funny. I just read that, and I'm like, no way. That's what we've been talking about for the last four weeks is how how Gary Seven is basically Doctor Who. <laughs> <laughs> that would be funny. All right. So, uh, that being said, let's go through the elsewhere in Star Trek, if you don't mind. Please. This is uh, April 2010 to May 2010. So in April, there was a paperback novel called Unspoken Truth by Margaret Wander Bonanno. I'm sure I mispronounced it. But it's basically a uh, Savic novel uh, based after the events of Star Trek IV. And it might have something to do with the condition that she was supposedly in at the beginning of that movie. Uh, I haven't read it yet, but it's, it's on my list of books to read. You remember us talking about that before? And then, uh, just on a side note for with this author, uh, she wrote many Star Trek novels. Uh, one of them being the very first Star Trek book I ever read called Strangers in the Sky. Uh, I remember reading this back when I was in like the sixth grade. And in that story, it, it retells the story of the very first human-Vulcan meeting. Hmm. And basically, it's a, a group of... A, a Vulcan ship that crash lands on Earth in the 20th century. Mm-hmm. Or, yeah, 20th century. Um, I don't remember if it was in the 60s or whatever. But uh, it there was an episode of Enterprise, you know, many, many, many years later called Corbin Creek or Carbon Creek. Mm-hmm. And it kind of the same premise that a, a Vulcan ship crashed in the 50s and had to integrate themselves in in human society until they could be rescued. So I don't know if the writers of uh, Carbon Creek knew about Strangers in the Sky, but it's a good book if you get a chance to read it. Uh, The other book that came out in uh, April was uh, The Needs of the Many 
which was written by Michael A. Martin. Uh, but actually, if you have the book, it'll say written by Jake Sisko with Martin A. Rock, uh, Michael A. Rock, Martin. Wow, it's like it's real. Like Jake exists. He did exist. He wrote that story. <laughs> <laughs> so this uh, book is based on the Star Trek Online game, which also came out in April of 2010. And basically it's a bunch of war stories from, from different people's point of view during this uh, this uh, the war that's happening in the Star Trek Online game. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's I have it. I've read the first couple of short stories. They're they're pretty good. Uh, the 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 real author Michael A. Martin. Uh, he wrote many Star Trek novels. He's mainly the one that writes most of the Titan novels based on Riker's mm. further adventures. And right. he he uh, wrote most of the uh, Enterprise post the series, kind of their relaunch. So the adventures of. Uh, Archer after the the TV series, hmm. but he got his start writing Star Trek comic uh, for Wildstorm. Uh, he wrote a uh, Next Generation story for a Star Trek special they had in two thousand one. So it's kind of cool that he started off as a Star Trek comic book writer and then ended up being like one of their main guys for Star Trek novels. Kind of cool. All right, and then the uh, only other thing I have is in May of 2010, uh, there was a paperback released called "The Children of Kings" by Dave Stern, and we've talked about this one too. This was uh, the last Pike era novel, so it's based when when Pike was in command of the Enterprise. And uh, just a, as a side note, Dave Stern uh, has written several um, Star Trek Next Generation comics for DC Comics. So it's kind of cool. It's kind of cool how comic book writers end up being novel writers and vice versa. And vice versa. There's plenty of novel writers that have done uh, comic books. Yep. Then you have people like Michael J. Straczynski. I don't know who that is, but I was thinking of Michael Jan Friedman. Well, true, but I'm just saying, uh, Straczynski was a TV writer, uh. so he was re- you know, writing for a lot of different series, and then he did Babylon 5, and then he went and did comic books for a while. Okay. And then now he wrote the, the Thor movie that just came out, and so, you know, I mean, he, he's just jumping all over the place. And good writers, why not? Why not work in different genres like that? Well, I've always said, ever since anybody would actually listen to me, and probably nobody really was. Uh, I'm sorry, what? <laughs> I always thought that uh, you know the that TV would potentially be the best storytelling medium, uh, except for at the end of every episode you had to reset it because you know you can't guarantee that everybody watched the episode from the week before, and so you you didn't get a cohesive story. Right. And then I'm saying, and I used to say, so the only medium that does that is comic books. Every month their story comes out and whether you read the week, the month before or not, it's a true continuation of that story. And, and, you know, they'll introduce a character in a couple of panels and then a year later, he's a major character. Right. Uh, and, you know, they planted those seeds all way back when, uh, you know, now TV's kind of like that, but you know, for the longest time, 
you know, TV was at the end of every episode, the reset button was hit, and you know, next week was you know start at square one again. Exactly. Right. So it's just kind of cool that comic to me, comic books was always the best storytelling medium, and now TV has finally caught up with it. Right. However, what did we see with the Star Trek movies? Uh, I mean, not the first one, but <laughs> you know, two through four. You know, that was a kind of a continuing storyline. Right. Yeah, I w- I will agree with you on that one. But then all the other other ones are one off standalone. Yeah, that's true. And most movies are standalones. It's just, yeah. I mean, it definitely since Hollywood has gotten into the mode of making money off of um, franchises where they've got a property that they continue to have movies based on, you definitely have an opportunity for uh, a, a storyline that can at least bridge two movies, if not more. Right. But the bad thing is is that they can't put a movie out or a franchise's movie out for more than you know, one every three years or something like that. Oh, yeah. But it didn't hurt Empire Strikes Back and uh, Return of the Jedi. Right, but they were three years. I think it was, I think it was the director that, that hurt Return of the Jedi, but may, maybe <laughs> maybe the author. I'm not sure. Who directed Return of the Jedi? I forgot. I don't know. Uh, but it was somebody you – know, it was no Irv Kirchner, I'll tell you that. You mean the director of RoboCop 2? <laughs> I couldn't tell you about that. But I can tell you, or, or Irvin, Irv, whatever, yeah. was uh, the great director of Empire Strikes Back, one of my favorite Star Wars movies, if not my favorite. I would agree with you, and yes, he was. He, he did direct RoboCop 2 as well, and that one's not as good as the first. No. But anyways, so that, that being said, let's, let's finish off this episode. Uh, next week, we got a surprise where we're uh, following through with viewers choice things we've been advertising lately so for the next couple of issues or episodes to celebrate our one year anniversary uh we will have uh viewers choice so next week we actually have a guest host uh and we'll see how the few after that pan out and then we'll start uh, our normal series of stuff so i'm looking forward to these next couple of episodes yeah, it should be interesting having a third party in, uh, in the discussion. Yep, should be good. So until then, guys, we'll talk to you later. See you next time on Star Trek Comic Book Review. Later. Thank you for listening to Star Trek Comic Book Review. All Star Trek stories and characters are copyrighted CBS Studios Incorporated. All music stories and characters discussed are for entertainment purposes only. You can email us at startcomicbookreview at gmail.com. Visit us at our website, www.stcomicbookreview.com. Subscribe to us via iTunes or friend us on Facebook at first name, ST Comic, second name, Book Review. See you next time on Star Trek Comic Book Review. Let's get the hell out.